Well, three pastors walked into the room. That may sound like the start of a joke, but it's uh, what happened in my life. And they spoke into my heart about the book of Revelation, the book that we're looking at. Uh, last week, I met with one of those pastors, and uh, he just naturally asked me, he said, well, what's your church going through? And I said, well, we're, we're going through the book of Revelation. He said, well, good luck with that. And uh, I said, he said, we just did as well, too. I said, really? I said, um, he said, but we kind of cheated. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, we just did uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3. We, we kind of skirted around all the really hard stuff. I said, well, that is kind of cheating. And it reminded me of this uh, great uh, picture that I said. This is how Revelation is explained. You see the uh, first three chapters here. There's all kinds of what's called preachability, right? But then when you get into these chapters right here, there's a green line. That's called reader confusion. That's where we're at. Like, what in the world are we going to do with these chapters, chapters 10 and 11? Today marks our halfway point where we are at as in this series, a halfway point. We're on, uh, and, and because of that, uh, we're going to take a pause in terms of what's called interludes. Last week, Pastor Brian covered chapters 8 and 9. We understood that the seventh seal brings us to the throne of God. And then there's trumpets that turn our attention towards God's righteous attention, a righteous, uh, righteous battle between good and evil. So what we've learned so far and where we've gone so far is we've looked at seals, we've looked at trumpet, we're looking at trumpets, and then there will come bulls. And one of the th things that's helpful is to think that in terms of like a Russian doll. Have you seen a Russian doll that would have... A doll inside a doll inside a doll. Uh, but this morning, before we take a look at the seventh trumpet, we're going to pause. And I learned something this week, and I thought, wow, I, I just never knew that in, in, in trying to explain this right here, and that there's a significant, unique factor or element in the book of Revelation that's really helpful and that is what's called an interlude. It, it, it's a pause. And, and we aren't supposed to miss it. Let me show you what I mean. These are, there, are, there are ten interludes that are in the book of Revelation. Ten, we understand, to be the perfect number, right? And five of them are in the first half, five in the second half. But most of them will fall in that really difficult part of what's called preachability. So this morning, we're going to take a look at a little book that's eaten, and then we're going to take a look at two witnesses of the slain lamb. What are interludes all about? Why is that so important? Because what it does is it, is it allows us to pump the brakes, if you will, and get from our father's perspective that he really is in control. This really is my father's world. It tells the body of Christ, followers of Jesus, daughter, son, you can trust me. This is my father's world. And so 
these interludes allow us a chance to step back, that we don't miss that our God is sovereign and true. Even in the midst of what are known as the dragons, the beasts, the false prophets, the real story is our Father is at work. And as a body of Christ, we are to be a community for the broken and the sinful and the marginalized. We are to show compassion for those who are sick. We are to proclaim through music the word of hope for those who are downtrodden. And we are to share the gospel again and again and again and again. Don't miss this, child of God. Interludes give encouragement and hope and heaven's perspective that the Lamb wins. Interludes allow us an opportunity to go. So Psalm 23, like that shepherd, he really does walk with you in the valley of the shadow of death? Yeah, he does. And that good shepherd, we can rest in the shadow of the Almighty and he meets us? Yeah. So before we read God's word, I want you to keep this in mind, that this is a bittersweet message that we will have. A, a, a bittersweet message. We will see that spiritual protection is interwoven with the red thread of physical suffering. You will see that in both chapters. Let me just say that again. This is a bittersweet message. We, we get this same kind of idea in Ezekiel's ministry. Ezekiel chapter 3, where he talks about bittersweet. For those who hear God's word, it strengthens our soul. And there will be others, there will be others who it will make their hearts hard, bittersweet. Our Heavenly Father will protect us and will be with us. That is his promise. Through the prophet Isaiah, he said in Isaiah 7, 14, we hear it at Christmas all the time, therefore the Lord will give you a sign and the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him, what's the next word? Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. Yeah. One author said this, the witness may be a hero to the Christian, but the world... The witness is often solitary, suspect, ignored, and occasionally abused. Australian Bible translator and contributed to the wonderful ministry, Scripture Union, said this, Somewhere today, Christians will die for their faith. Somewhere today, a church will be torched. Jesus was indeed born that there might be peace on earth, but it will not happen until he returns to establish the new world order. So we must wait, not sleeping, but watching, eager for it, but wise about the times we face. This banner over here is a, a constant reminder to me that Christians still die. These are restricted nations. These are hostile areas. Christians still die. The voice of the martyrs, 
I don't know if we have the logo here, but if you look at the Voice of the Martyrs, their logo is half of thorns and half of, like, chains. A reminder that half of the people that call themselves followers of Jesus are either being killed, persecuted, in prison. Don't forget. Hebrews chapter 12. That's not a surprise. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance. Run. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne. And then verse 3 says, this is the part where you and I are in the text. Listen, consider him who endured such an opposition from sinners so that you fill in the blank, Betsy. So that you, fill, so that you, John, will not grow weary and lose heart. So, you hear this red thread and you go, what's a person to do with something like that? How do you navigate that? And one of the things that we come from the book of Revelation, one of the major themes is suffering will happen. But listen to what Jesus' little brother said. Like right out of the chute, James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, it says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work so that you may mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Suffering comes, we are never alone. Remember, this message is a pause. It's a pump the brakes. It's a daughter-son message that says, don't be overcome by terror, child of God. pastor friend, the second pastor friend, called me about 10 days ago, just checking in. He just said, hey, how's it going? Good. I said, we're going through the book of Revelation. He said, me too. I said, really? He said, we just finished our series on the book of Revelation. I said, okay, you're super smart. What were the nuggets that you, what's your best nugget that you could share with me? He said this. Share with your people this, Kirk. The worst is yet to come. The best is yet to be. I said, wow. The worst is yet to come. The best is yet to be. That's the name of this message. So here's where we're going to go. Chapter 10. We'll read chapter 10 and we'll walk away from chapter 10 and we'll ask the question, is anybody listening? I mean, is anybody listening to the gospel message? What if my best friend isn't? What if my spouse or daughter or son or grandson, granddaughter isn't? Pastor Kirk, it's breaking my heart. Verse 6 will share with us something super sombering. No more delay. We've run out of time. So the question is, what can a person do? For one or ones you love, we'll talk about that. Here's where we'll go to chapter, 
11, it seems like that the witness of God's people is defeated and failing. And I'll share with you this third pastor who shared a great story with me. He reminded me from church history. So what can a person do in this reality? Take up your cross. Follow me. Come and die. I'll share with you a uh, really neat resource that I think will encourage you. And then I want to make sure that when we get to chapter 11, we get to about verse 14, you not only hear it, but you hear the music for it as well too. So let's read God's word uh, from Revelation chapter 11, verse, and chapter 11 and 12. I want to encourage you to find a copy of God's word. It's, it's there in your pew. Uh, pick, pick one of those up, follow along, read it along with me. Remember, right out of the chute in this uh, prophetic, lit- this apocalyptic literature, uh, John is, is, is told by the angel three things. You're blessed if you read it out loud, if you hear it, and not the bobblehead here, but let the Spirit speak to you. He who has ears, let him hear. And then the third thing is what? That we apply it. That we put feet to it. And we go, oh yeah, this makes a difference like when I walk up the door this week, right? Exactly. Okay, did you find it there? On page uh, 1068, reading in Jesus' name. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had, been, had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from the heavens spoke to me once more, Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Chapter 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, 
clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They will have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they had finished their testimony, the beasts that come up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. The third woe is coming. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, Hear this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you've taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hail storm. This is our Father's word. It is true. Let him who has ears, let him hear. Amen. Here's what we can take from chapter 10. There's a gospel witness in an unheeding world Maybe a better word is a non-listening world. Maybe that's another way to state it. Let me explain it this way. This is no ordinary angel we just read about. It, this angel comes with the word of a lion. And many scholars think this could be Jesus. And if he's not, this is one majestic, mammoth, mighty angel Nothing like a precious moment's angel. Amen? Yeah, not him. The first three verses, you get this assurance, and then a prohibiting to write what he saw. But then this vindication that comes. Judgment will come. And then there's a very sombering verse in verse 6. It says, there will be no more delay. 
Let's just pause for a second and understand what that means. The, the King James has a better way of, of really picking up what that means and the nuance that's there. Listen to what the King James said. If you want to look at verse 6, you can follow along. It says this, the King James translation says, The things that are in, and the earth and the things therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that sounds a little confusing, but this is the point, that there should be time no longer. Time no longer. The significance is this. Time has run out. Now, we've shared this before from the pulpit. In the, in the New Testament, there's two words for time. In the New Testament, kairos and chronos. Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, and chronos. Now, just bear with me as we get technical, because it's super important. Kairos are significant breakthrough moments like a wedding day. When we prepare a couple and we say, on your wedding day, we will say this, marriage is to be entered thoughtfully, reverently, and respectfully. Know what you're, it's a significant moment. It will change your life. Babies, funerals, gravesite. When the doctor comes in and says, sir, ma'am, I need to tell you what the test results confirm. Game-changing stuff. Those are called kairos moments, where you pause you take them in and go, whoa. But that's not the word that's used here. Time will run out. The word there is chronos. Chronos. It means time like this kind of time. It means wars are marked by time. Ball games and draft choices and championships are marked by chronos times. Graduation, anniversaries. Got it? In this verse, it says that time has run out. Hell and judgment await for those who do not bow to King Jesus. As the church, as God's people, we ask the question, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And the New Testament writers tell us that his kindness leads to repentance, Romans 2.4. And Jesus' good friend Peter says this in 2 Peter 3.9. He said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter's idea of slowness is the idea of lateness, with a ref reference to an appointed time. In other words, Jesus is really coming back. So if your heart is heavy right now, this morning, you might be asking the question this. What can a person do for someone you love? Here it is. As your shepherd, I want to give you this. Because you've got people on your heart, i got people on my heart. Pray and fast and stay in the room, repeat. Pray and fast and stay in the room with reasonable kindness and repeat. And until your dying day, be on your knees. You have people in your life 
I have people in my life. Let's just stop right now and pray for him silently. God, hear our prayers. Our hearts are broken for those that we love. We don't want to see anyone perish. We love these people. We have a relationship with these people. Grace us to stay in the room, to practice reasonable kindness, intersect all of these people that we've named to you with other gospel, compassionate, graceful witnesses of yours. Have mercy, Lord. Have mercy. Amen. These two chapters, there seems to be two key words that link these two chapters. And maybe you caught them. Uh, one was the word mystery in verse 10, verse 7, and then another word that's used in 11.8 called symbolically or figuratively in some English translations. If we're looking at the interludes, if we're looking at this idea that this is our Father's world, we're to pause and not be overwhelmed by terror, by fear, these two words are helpful. Mystery in verse 10.7 and symbolically or figuratively in verse 11 and 8. What do we mean by the word mystery? Well, it's used a ton in the New Testament. Even our Lord Jesus used it. But the idea of a mystery in the Bible is not something unknowable. That's not the idea about, we, we think like murder mystery, right? That's not the idea about the Bible, in the Bible. It's not something unknowable. Rather, it is, it is what can be known only through revelation. Because God reveals it. That's the difference of mystery. God reveals it and he will show it. The second word, symbolically or figuratively, is a beautiful word. And it comes from, it comes from, literally, the word that we use for the Holy Spirit. Pneuma. It relates to the spiritual realm, the invisible sphere in which the Holy Spirit moves and imparts faith. It's a spiritual point of view. It describes the non-physical, if you will, metaphysical dimension. It relates to the transcendent or to the reality which is perceptible beyond, excuse me, beyond perceptible to our normal senses. The Apostle Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, when he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned spiritually discerned. So these two words, mystery and symbol, how does that relate? Well, there was something very helpful that came to me from a, a man by the name of Joel Green in his book, How to Read Prophecy. In chapter 6, he talks about some principles for understanding and interpreting symbolism or mystery. And I won't give them all to you, but these are some really practical things that when we get into a chapter like at chapter 11, we go, whoa, what's this supposed to be? Here, here's the first one, ready? You approach prophecy like this, apocalyptic literature like this, with great 
Humility. We have posture of humility. Daniel 8.27 says, it is beyond our understanding. And so we approach with a posture of, under, of humility with our hands open. Second one is this. This is nothing new. Some of you are going to say, yeah, I get that. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Context is important. In chapter 11, we look at lampstands, we look at olive trees, and we've seen them before. Lampstands we've seen in chapter 1. And olive trees we see in Zechariah chapter 4. Those who serve Jesus. And so we, 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 we take, we take the, if, if something's cloudy, you compare it to what's clear. And you take what's clear and you look at the cloudy. Think of being at the eye doctor. Remember how they do that? Whoever your eye doctor is, does it look better with this one or this one? This one or this one? And after a time you go, I'm just making this up. I don't know. Well, the clear looks into the cloudy. Okay? Yeah. But this third one is super helpful. I found this really helpful to me in approaching. One posture of understanding, Scripture interprets Scripture. Got it, got it, got it. But this one is really important. Look for the main point, the pastoral concern. Details serve mainly to supply the panoramic backdrop of the main event. Details are the panoramic background of the main event. A student came up to me as up in November, and when I was asking for feedback, I mentioned that before this series, I met with about six or seven different groups, almost 100 people, and said, give me some feedback on this. And, and a high school student came up <clears throat> after I met with students, and he said, please, Pastor Kirk, don't get so deep into details and explanation. We get lost. I looked at him, and I said, are you kind of telling me don't miss the forest for the trees? He goes, yep, that's what I mean. So we come to chapter uh, chapter 11, and we see what is an undefeatable and undying church. We see an undefeatable and undying church, and we come up with this, uh, I don't know, it's probably the elephant in the room in chapter 11, and you got to ask the question, who are the two witnesses? Totally fair. Totally fair. So I'm going to give you the answer. Right here, this is what the biblical scholars say. Take your choice. I mean, people who love Jesus, who love God's word, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who are repentant, who are wanting to be followers of Christ, who study God's word, these are all the options. Yeah, when I came to all that, I go, well, which one? Now, I got, I got my ideas about it. I mean, I could be wrong, and when you get to heaven, you can say, you were wrong, Pastor Kirk. And I go, yeah, I was wrong about, yeah, sorry. So, so what's the point? The wrong point is not, we'll never know. The, right, the bottom line, or the, the main point is this. God honors his faithful witnesses. That is not a bailout. That is true. God honors his faithful witnesses. 
N.T. Wright is an Anglican biblical scholar from Britain. He says this, the martyr witness of the church will succeed where plagues failed. The real church is safe. Thank you. Jesus said this, John 16, 33, I have overcome the world. The word overcome, once again, is that beautiful word Nike, which is victory that has come about in battle. Martyrdom does not mean, excuse me, it doesn't mean that martyrdom is done. God's people are protected, and spiritually, they are vulnerable to persecution. I, I began my, my, my sermon by, um, by telling you about three pastors, and the third one uh, was a guy who uh, just came back from a sabbatical. And one of the things that I love to do is I love to learn from other leaders, especially other pastors. And so um, we sat down this week, we grabbed a cup of coffee, and I asked him, I said, so what did you learn on your sabbatical? Did you do any reading? He goes, I did. He said, I started reading Schaff's, uh, the Schaff History of the Christian Church. Eight volumes, really hard reading. That might sound super boring to you. It's really interesting to me. And so he said, he said it was really hard. I had to get into the flow. I said, so what would you learn? He said, oh, Kirk. Do you know that there were a lot of creepy people and bad people in the church? It's amazing. At times, at times, the only game in town, if you will, was one church before the Reformation, right? Yeah. He said sometimes they were really bad leaders. I mean, like, really bad. Real jerks. He said, but the thing that I took away from that was this. You can't kill the church. You can't. And, and, and we were, he said, you know, in 500 years from now, people might look back at us and go, what a mess. How did God ever use them? And I looked at him and I said, Rob, what you're telling me is don't bet against the church. He said, exactly. The church is the bride of Christ. Where Jesus is if you will, where is girl? You don't talk about my girl that way. You don't mess with someone that way. You don't. Don't bet against the church. Even the most belligerent foes of the gospel give glory to God. 11.13 is it. Now, did you hear when we got to verse um, 14? Did you hear the verse? Could you hear the verse? Duke Divinity School Prof. Richard Lisher said this, I have seen the future and it belongs to God. And you heard it. And it goes like this. Verse 14.
I just want to stand like King George II, right? Isn't that a great story? History will never tell us what the truth is. Some say he stood because he thought it was the end. Others thought he stood because he thought it was the national anthem. Others thought he just woke up from a nap. <laughs> I'll go with number three. Yeah. The one who is and who was, and verse 17 doesn't complete that and said who is to come because the reality is the future has now arrived. Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So what can a person hold on to? Hold on to this. First of all is this. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. The context of that in John chapter 15 is that beautiful idea of the vine and the branches. And it ends with love one another. And then the next verse says this. Don't be surprised by that. The second is this, Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, a hard word. If you want to save your life, you'll destroy it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Another place Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. So what does it mean to deny yourself or to allow yourself to be destroyed? On the back side of the insert was a wonderful, helpful idea laying out as a daughter or son what it means to come and die. What does that look like? You cannot certainly do it on your own. Not at all. But may the Lord take that this week as you process that, as you think about physical death and persecution, death to the grip on your possessions, death to comforts, death to sin, death to putting ourselves first, death to remaining uninvolved, death to self-sufficiency. May the Spirit of God, may the Spirit of God give you ears to hear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for your word for us. Thank you that in this interlude that we've had, that you remind us again and again that you are sovereign and nothing takes you by surprise. So thanks for this morning. Thanks that we could be together. We eagerly await your return. In Jesus' name.